0: Welcome to the Rainbow Bull with Tim Volk from T. Volk and Company Consulting. In this podcast, Tim, a proud member of the LGBTQ community, discusses a range of topics around the five capitals of a flourishing family, human, intellectual, social, spiritual, and financial capital. Tim will use this framework as he and his guest experts delve into the secrets of the wealthy and how we might learn from them. So let's get started on this exciting adventure together. The word addiction is tossed around today like a novice on a pickleball court. Is it really more prevalent or is it just more acceptable to talk about it? Arden O'Connor is with your host, Tim Volk, to talk about addiction, wealth, and the LGBTQ plus community. I'm Patrice Socora. Tim, Arden, so tell me, what is addiction? What does it mean?
1: I'm going to defer that immediately, to Arden, because <laughs> and I mean, this is this is your world, my dear. And I of just course. love it when you start talking about this. So,
2: of course, well, Addiction. thank you. And of course, we're going to open up with a definition. And I, I didn't bring my dictionary with me, but I'll, I'll describe it's, it how I. Yeah, think
1: that's what I want. I want you to describe it like.
2: I think about addiction in two ways. You know, When we think about substance abuse particularly, but one, I would say addiction can apply to all sorts of things, as was already mentioned. It can be compulsive habits around work, eating, sex. It can be anything that lights up that dopamine in our brains that gets us excited, gambling. Mm-hmm. We see sort of a range within our clientele and even just colloquially, like I see friends who would say I'm addicted to XYZ show. I think when we talk about really clinical addiction, two things I think are important to note. One is the new clinical manual, the DSM-5, defines it on a spectrum. And we really see Mm -hmm. that. We see some clients who experience abuse in a much less significant way and other clients who have been similar to my brother's story, which I'm very open about, 15, 16 rehabs, still struggling really in the depths of a problematic behavior. His happened to be drugs and alcohol. So one is, it's a spectrum. I think the other thing to think about is there's a psychological addiction and then there's a medical addiction or a physical addiction is the better way to say it. So people with serious alcohol abuse get the shakes and some kinds of physical symptoms if you take away that substance, but there's Mm -hmm. also a psychological dependency on a person, an activity, a behavior. And so I think that's in my brain how I think about it. But it's sort of a pattern of, of doing something over and over and feeling a real sense of attachment to that issue um, psychologically or physically. So
1: the fact that I like the pillows really neat on the couch.
2: <laughs> that would that's... be like OCD.
1: OCD. Okay, so okay. So I'm just <laughs> OCD. Okay, good. I, I just want to make sure that I'm... Because I think that there's, as Patrice said, we're so surrounded by this addictive behavior at times. And I didn't think about it as broad as it, you and I started talking about it. And then its impact in general yes. to the population. And then we'll talk about it as it relates to the LGBTQ or the gay community. And because uh, I get tired of saying LGBTQ. So if we could just sometimes we'll say gay community, then it's
2: okay. <laughs> meaning
1: the LGBTQ we're we're including everybody. It's part of that. So, I, hopefully we, we, we're good with that. But anyway, what I mean, this is so fun because you do this. I mean, you are the founder and chief executive of a carton professional group that deals with crisis all the time. Yes. So how much of what you do is ad- related to addiction or that type of behavior.
2: I would guess, and I haven't done a true statistical analysis recently, but I would guess at least half of our clients have some compulsive behavior that they're struggling with, whether it's in that substance abuse area, which is a big one. That's how we were founded due to Mm -hmm. me seeing it in my personal life, people struggling with addictive issues. But it could be in some of these other areas, like I said, what we would call more of a process addiction, gambling, food, sex, you know, work, all you know now the big topic i would say with adolescents and young people is social media digital addiction and nice. it's tricky because does it fall specifically in the clinical guidelines probably not but the behaviors are problematic i mean we do see families who are we're seeing specialist facilities families who are popping up saying my son is really addicted to video games and I can't get them out of the basement. And so I think there are some, Mm -hmm. whether we're talking about it in the true clinical sense, a person has an addictive disorder and there are specific criteria to apply to that, or whether we're talking about it more in general sense, this is something I'm really attached to. And maybe that's another word to consider. I can't get away from my bowl of ice cream at the end of the night. I can't get away from engaging in, you know, hours upon hours of phone usage, those kinds of things. Hey, Arden, is addiction learned? It's a great question. question. It's genetically passed. We know that. So sons of fathers who are alcoholics, we know are four to six times more likely to be alcoholics than the general population or people who don't have those genes. So I think one, we know it's genetic, but two, I do think patterns of eating patterns of phone usage. It's funny when parents complain about kids being totally trapped on social media, they can't get away from their phones. My first question is like, what time <laughs> of the day do they see you away from your devices? Because I think it's very hard to set a standard in a home and criticize a 14 year old when dad is sort of stereotypically, you know, texting under the table type of behavior. So I do think it's learned. I do think yeah. we have a society of people who, you know, we're a culture of, overindulging in things that make us feel good um I, you know my running mm-hmm. joke has been if you think about popular tv shows these days and i'm a huge blue bloods fan on you know friday nights on cbs try and watch an episode where they're not breaking out the bourbon you know it's not very rarely are they having herbal tea when they want to connect on something and it's not a judgment it's just more of an observation that mm-hmm. we as a culture if you're excited you celebrate with food you celebrate with drink if you are sad you celebrate that sadness or you wallow in that sadness with, with food and drink. drink and those are two main issues but there's all you know folks who are very anxious decide that they're going to over exercise to relieve their anxiety they don't do what's in the guidelines they go for 2 hours 6 hours 7 hours you know it's it's just i think it's the nature of the us and that you know it, Nothing can be too much. I think we, and we live in a culture where I think we overindulge and then we try frankly and find a pill that will solve the problem. So it's, um, I think when you say, can it be learned? Yes. I don't think kids are born out of the womb on their phones. They obviously picked up that behavior from somewhere and it's not just home. It's school, it's peers. It's what's, you know, it's the content that our creators are putting out there. That's really um, seductive to kids. True, true
1: it's quite encompassing. Yes. And when, when we talk about it and we're talking about it very clinically, but living in it is a different sense. So I don't know that, that some of the behavior, like John and I were having dinner the other night and I saw people, they were having a date, a young couple and um, they never got off their phones. Their whole conversation was about what they were reading on their phones. Yeah
0: and that's really interpersonal isn't it <laughs> and i thought
1: because we get asked the question a lot well how did you guys meet you know what app were you on i'm like there were no apps we didn't have cell phones it's like you know we had cell phones but they were bricks and uh you know we talk yeah. and they're like well so how do you get to know each? how did you make this last and i'm like i have no idea but i wonder if you know that we some of the behavioral pieces that we're doing today are also a reason why. Because I think Jay, you know, one of our uh, our mutual mentors is a guy named Jay Hughes is saying that one of the stats that's very disturbing is over fifty percent of the women are living singly mm-hmm. in this country right now. And so I'm wondering about some of the behaviors we have if that's driving some of it. You know, like this, it's just bizarre. We think about it.
2: I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think, um, well, I can say two things. As one of those 50% of women who's living singly, I will often be at restaurants and smirk to myself if I'm enjoying my dinner with my book and I look at the next table and I say, so my choice is a lovely novel and my you know piece of salmon, or I can be on my phone with a part which, I mean, is that better or is what? that worth not right. speaking and being silently in the company of others? But more seriously, You know, this is a huge topic of amongst parents who say my child is connecting through social media to this whole community of people who attend her high school. But she knows nobody. She feels alone. And we know Mm -hmm. uh, we know that suicide rates for 14 to 17 year olds are higher than they've ever been. We know that the gay community or the LGBTQ plus community, which is a mouthful, um, is experiencing higher rates of self-harm, homelessness, drug addiction, all these things. So I think as a culture, we have to sort of look at our, you know, why do we engage in these compulsive behaviors? And some of it's because it's easy. You know, your phone is now on your watch. It fits in your pocket. There's no reason not to be connected. And there is this, you know, in business school, they used to call it FOMO. There's this fear that we always have that what is in front of me isn't enough. So now I better find, you know, there might be something better happening on Instagram or Facebook. And I think- You know, one thing I have had to train myself to do is, and it does not come easily for me, is to do meditation, to think about being in nature, Mm -hmm. to put my phone, which is now my listening device. You know, even if I'm going to listen to a book on tape, really listen to a book on tape and put it in airplane mode. Don't listen to a book on tape and talk to your friend and, you know, be scrolling Instagram all at the same time because you're going to do none of those things in a way that's going to bring you the peace that you're looking for.
1: I think we'll come back to the meditation piece because I think that's a great way for us to help provide Absolutely. some guidance. But um, I know I want to touch on two things. One is, you know, I, I want to directly ask you, why did you get involved in this work? Why, why did you start doing this? Because this is not an easy path. No. Nor is it something that I think a lot of people say, gosh, I think I'll be a crisis. I think I'll become a crisis. center.
2: <laughs> Especially as an MBA. I don't even yeah. have a degree. Um, actually, one of my first meetings, I this gentleman ran a big chain of behavioral health programs. And I told him my idea and he said, lots of easier ways to, to, <laughs> to
0: make, make money
2: or to have a career than what you're describing. So I got into this from a personal story. Um, I think a lot of us who work in behavioral health and mental health addiction, eating disorders, all these topics, I think a lot of us come from either personal experience ourselves or with family members. And I came from one with a family member. I had a brother who was severely addicted first to alcohol, later to opiates, and he ultimately died of a fentanyl-induced overdose in 2018. Um, And actually, we've produced a film called Affluence and Addiction that speaks very much to some of the same themes we're talking about today. But I became passionate. You know, he was still alive when I ran my company or when I started the company. I became really interested in how to families like ours, who have financial resources to give somebody opportunities to get good care. But how do we how do you navigate the system? How do you get better outcomes than what we were seeing, which is he goes into third for thirty days. he comes out, he relapses within three days, and we're starting that whole cycle just over and over and over again. So overall, that was that was the impetus to get involved. and And two things were important to me. One was to see, Where are the outcomes better? And we know that they're with physician and doctor programs. So if you're a doctor or um, a pilot, excuse me, physician or pilots, and you get in trouble for an addictive disorder, you're sent to a licensing board and they basically monitor your recovery. They have certain requirements. Your case is managed for years and the outcome and your license to practice medicine or to fly is used as leverage. And we know the outcomes with those boards are some of the highest in the industry, well over 70, 80%. Wow. So those are great. And, And to some extent, for the average person, you don't necessarily always have clean cut leverage. But the long term nature of how this is treated, it's treated as a disease, people are seeing a therapist, they're monitored for drug or alcohol abuse over the long term, that contributes to it, too. So that's part of what we've integrated. The second piece is looking at the family as part of the client. And when people ask me, it's truly the family system. And I define that loosely, it could be Financial advisors, it could be friends, it could be genetic and biological family. But a lot of times, what we see is the person with the addictive disorder is treated they're going into a facility they don't sign a release of information the family is left and this happened to my family multiple times sort of on the wayside they're paying for the services but and then it's like okay chris is getting out tomorrow and you know my parents are like well where's he going to live cuz he isn't coming back uh, here you know true. i don't know what what's the plan here and so i really felt like and by the way you know my father being a classic example of an enabler even though he was in recovery, even though he understood addiction to his soul, because it was something he struggled with on the alcohol side, you know, he still, this was his son. He was into protective behavior. So if my brother called frantically for money, my dad needed someone to talk him off a ledge. And that's really what our company is set up to address.
1: Wow. The learning curve. It's yes. it's, it's like a, uh, the learning curve is like you're walking into a wall and We've had a similar situation in our family where, you know, we've had a member of the family who's, we, we, you know, helped, uh, and, and they're adults, they're legally adults, so you can't really commit them unless they agree to go. That was the other challenge, I think, and and that this, my observation is that there's just no prep for the family, um, that the family's kind of like, okay, now what? Do we, yeah. do you go back to where, where we were? Did you, and, and then the behavior hasn't really changed. That's what. Exactly. And I've had friends of mine. I've introduced you to one of them who you'll get to know, Wesley. And she, she talked about spending hundreds of thousands of dollars with her son going in and out of rehab and it didn't work. She said, these 30 day rehabs do not work. This is in her opinion. It's just not
0: a way to solve for it. So. <sighs> is the 30 day the norm, Arden?
2: Yes, so I can speak and it's interesting. I'm looking forward to connecting with Wesley. My parents were actually quoted in the Barron's financial article about how much they spent and what their investment, you know, and it was actually, the article was positioned as, is addiction a threat to retirement. So my parents spent half a million dollars out of pocket on my brother's care. And it's not to say that 30 day programs have no place in the continuum. I firmly believe they're gonna be things we rely on. It's just in and of itself, as of what people want, including my own parents, They want to think someone's going to go away for 30 days they come back and they're normal again and there's you know the the addictive behaviors are forgotten and even the individual who's experiencing the addiction oftentimes thinks uh, they call it the pink cloud of recovery they're just starting to feel better i'm never going to drink again they feel really good and then they get home and their wife is angry about at them again because the trash wasn't taken out and their child is screaming and this happens they lose their job and some trigger comes up and unless they have a very tight recovery program, which some people get into right away, but many do not, the temptations are just too overwhelming. And the one thing I'd like to point out about the 30 days, 30 days was an insurance. Uh, it, I wondered. It, it came as out as a byproduct. People used to be institutionalized for you know months and months and months. It was costing insurance providers lots and lots of money, so they eventually establish 30 days as the standard of care. There is no scientific basis for 30 days. 90 days is actually closer to what we know gives the brain enough time to heal. And if you think about someone, especially if they've been using or abusing a substance for a long period of time, You know, they need some time to let that that substance get out of their body. They need some time to kind of reestablish their footing. So by the end of 90 days, it's a much more realistic time frame to assume that they're getting some clinical skills underneath their belt. They're getting used to therapy and they might be ready to either step down to a sober home or another level of care or go home but 30 days there's no we hear parents all the time and it needs to be 30 days it has to be and you know it's it's really it was just something that the insurance companies dreamt up in their infinite wisdom
0: <laughs> amazing that's
1: great isn't that just comforting
0: oh,
2: isn't yeah, just just,
1: comforting like, all the resources of the billions of dollars the insurance companies control and that's what they came up with
2: <laughs> this is the plan this you is think the
1: plan. Th- you would think they'd want better outcome too i mean you'd think
2: well, I think now part of the struggle we're having, with some exceptions, self-insured employers are, you know, one group that's a little bit immune to this. But people switch insurance companies. You know, companies sometimes change policies every year, that's so right. insurance companies don't have a huge incentive anymore the way they may have two decades ago to worry about people over the long term and what the overall cost is because they're likely going to be off their plan. And you know, in addition to just Wanting to serve people who could afford to get good care. You know, we're a concierge service. I didn't want the way we thought about treatment to be dictated by what insurance thinks. I mean, for years, it used to be that you had to fail out of. So you would have somebody who says, I have an alcohol issue. I know Mm -hmm. I need help. I think I need to go away somewhere, which is a miracle in my world. I'd like more clients who raise their hands and say, this is a problem. But then if you said, OK, you're going to use insurance, sometimes the insurance comes back and says, no, you need to go outpatient and fail at that. And then we'll consider it's it's the, the dumbest thing I've ever heard. If we are lucky enough to get someone who's ready to embrace some level of higher, you know, higher level, right. let's get them into that. Start them with the best and <clears throat> lean them down. Let's not hope for a bad outcome and then have to deal with it when the person's that much more severe. But that's, you know, that's how they work. So
1: it's interesting. I don't think we're solving for the issue i think it's it's like we're treating the issue but we're not solving for the issues if that makes sense
2: It absolutely does. And I think, you know, it sort of gets back to what I said earlier. We're a culture of let's do everything we want. And oh, do you have a pill to solve the problems that were created by the behaviors I just engaged in? And so I think, you know, addiction is, it should be treated like diabetes. It's a chronic long term disease. And in fact, we treat it much more like, I'm trying to think of a good example where you go in for surgery and what you get gets fixed. That's what people assume. I'm going to go get this finger in a cast. I'll come out and I'll basically go back to life as it was. And I don't have to make any behavior changes. And so and this is not just true for addiction. It's also true for mental health. We see so many Mm -hmm. families with young people and older people who get hospitalized for some significant psychiatric incident. And the family says, oh, yeah, they got out of the psychiatric hold. We're all better now. And I think to myself, that's actually nothing has fundamentally changed. They haven't gotten into a better routine. Their, their symptoms haven't. But they, the facility said it's time to be released. So, um, And even with wealthy families who could afford to treat this more prophylactically, mm-hmm. they wait until there's a crisis, until someone gets into a car crash. For the most part, there's exceptions, of course. But they Mm -hmm. wait until somebody gets hospitalized there's an embarrassing incident you know money is misused they're about to be kicked out of the family business that's when we get the call it's very rare that someone says you know my son's 16 he's using marijuana i'm noticing that he's kind of not as engaged in school as i'd like and let's have a conversation about that now so we don't have to worry about it when he's 25. It's more like they, they call us at 36 and they're like, you're going to fix him, right? And well, you yeah, yeah. can't fix anybody, but uh, especially right now, we got to assume there's going to be a longer term plan here because he's been engaging these behaviors for a long time.
1: Right. And 30 days or even 90 days may not be enough. It's a
2: Exactly. So, exactly. so why
1: do you think the the and this is you and I had this great conversation uh as we were prepping for this today was why do you think the gay community why do you think the LGBTQ community has even more susceptible
2: yeah
1: to the, to this we, we
2: I mean, you probably have some answers or, or theories to too as well. I mean, I think what we know are folks in the younger years are still experiencing stigma, bullying at higher rates. And we know whether that is mm-hmm. stigma within their own family system, because they're afraid to come out and be who they are. We see it, especially with youth going through trans, like a transition between genders. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It's just a more vulnerable population um, in terms of the level of it's not even emotional resiliency but what they're encountering in their school settings among peer groups even in their own family systems depending on where they live and what their family structure looks like so when you take somebody who already has something that they're mentally anxious about especially when you're young and your brain isn't fully formed substances become a really great way to escape your current reality um and and frankly overuse of substances you know whereas Many of us, I, I hear so many people say, I can't drink the way I used to. You hear that all the time. And you learn yeah. as you get older, you know, when you were 25, you may drink a certain amount. Now you you may process the alcohol differently. When you're 15, 16, you know, trying the marijuana now, okay, I tried marijuana. Do I want to try mushrooms? Do I want to try? Th- it's just not as scary. You don't have as much of a long-term view. Um, and if you're in pain and you're feeling isolated, this is a way to take that, that emotions pain. away, you know? Yeah
1: it's not good it's and 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 the other thing that i find interesting is we have witnessed some very successful people who somehow got into crystal meth Mm. and literally lost everything they lost their spouse they lost their homes they lost their jobs they lost one of them was an executive for uh, a huge title company on the west coast a senior vp Mm-hmm. or evp i don't remember senior evp they put him through rehab it didn't work mm-hmm. and mutual friends saw that he was living on the street it just i don't understand
2: yeah i'm I'm sorry to hear that i think you know all drugs and alcohol can lead down disastrous path that's just the reality um okay. you hear similar stories with alcohol the the interesting or the more scary part, depending on how you look at it around crystal meth and certain opiates as well, is that it has, you know, it's got, it's highly addictive. It really can, if, you know, I was a, an embarrassed consumer of the show intervention every once in a while. And mm-hmm. if you saw the cases of people who are on crystal meth, people almost look like they have become homeless because it's got an immensely addictive quality. They don't take care of themselves. They're fiending for that drug. And it's, you know, I I don't know exactly the chemical nature of it, mm-hmm. but there's something that it does. You so you see people with teeth that are brown. You I mean you really see people who have looked and they look appear almost psychotic. And they are during the instances where they're using it's where you hear people who would never normally under sober circumstances commit a crime. And it's not to say that couldn't happen under cocaine, L- much sure. less likely it's out of your system very fast and it's usually less addictive. Certainly marijuana. Again, you use copious amounts of marijuana. You can have a psychotic episode. We see a lot of that in our practice, but it doesn't come on as fast and furious as something like crystal meth. I mean, the other really scary substance, there's many scary substances. And, and frankly, law enforcement is probably way more equipped to answer this question question around what are the worst things that we can we know that are out there. I think for me as a as a person practicing and and having lost a sibling, the the rise in fentanyl laced substances. So, you know, it used to be you wouldn't necessarily if you bought marijuana off the street, you weren't necessarily concerned about the marijuana being laced with something that could be deadly. And fentanyl is that. And, and that is oh, one of the things man. we're seeing with people who try something once you know, and it may not even have been an opiate. It could have been something totally different, cocaine, for instance, and they're gone. Um, And so that, you know, and and if you look on the public policy side, you know, there's a few organizations in Massachusetts, which is where we're based, that are doing really interesting stuff on a public health side, things that are more harm reduction focused, which has been sort of a dirty word in many clinical communities, Mm -hmm. meaning we're not saying we're going to wipe out use, we're saying we're going to, you know, it's like safe injection sites, those kinds of things. And so one of the things I heard that I thought was an interesting initiative was testing opiates with homeless populations to make sure fentanyl wasn't present. And so on the one hand, you can argue, well, we want them off everything. Of course, that's the ultimate goal. But at least we won't have the amount of casualties we've seen in the past decade or in the past, not even decade, probably the last five years due to fentanyl. If we're thinking about sort of public health measurements like that.
0: Hey, hey. Sorry for the interruption. Look, I know you're listening to the Rainbow Bull podcast, and I'm really happy you're here. But if you have any questions or issues you'd like to have us discuss with the experts, please email them to us at tim.volk at com. We would love to hear from you. Thinking of casualties, what about suicides?
2: Mm. Really tough topic, and I come back to... Well, two things, young people and the LGBTQ plus communities. I mean, honestly, we're talking about um, and it's not to say again, not to say that suicides aren't high with people who are under the influence. We, of course, with adults, it's common, too. But I think the alarming thing we're seeing is young people who have a particularly bad encounter at school. Something happens, you know, in social media. They get really frustrated and they access a gun or some other kind of. Um, method to kill themselves. And um, and already, again, it's coming back to what I said earlier, higher rates of suicide attempts, but that is st- stemming from higher rates of anxiety and depression in our youth. And COVID certainly made that problem. It was already a problem in our country. <laughs> COVID made it even worse. So when you put substances in the mix, again, and you talk about low impulse control for many people, it's not a good combination, um, and you know we've done all sorts of talks with different types of clients and different types of groups that we work with around. You know, how do you no- notice signs and symptoms of suicide? When is somebody really in need of a certain type of intervention? How do you think about, you know, creating safe spaces? All those kinds of things, because it is a truthfully, it's a, a huge issue in our country.
1: I think the you know one of your team members Laura was able to share with us and I saw this stat on a white paper that I I recently wrote but the Trevor Project estimates that more than 1.8 million LGBTQ youth 13 to 24 seriously consider suicide each year in the US and at least one attempt suicide every 45 seconds. Mm. So we are seeing and, and I think I don't have the stats for this because we're living in it as we speak. As we are recording this, we're seeing certain states and various legislations pass restrictive, new restrictive uh, anti-LGBTQ legislation, which mm-hmm. is what I think Kentucky passed this last week. It's the most restrictive in the country. Mm-hmm. And so we're in an age where the people who are feeling different like you said earlier Mm -hmm. like the 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 young gay youth or transgendered in particular right now Mm -hmm. i mean that seems to be the the devil in the uh the media right now which is kind of comical to think that the drag queens are the and and i mean if you've ever watched rupaul's drag queen race and then and she and, and they do the celebrity ones which are great right where they mask them you don't know who the celebrity is or they the celebrity comes out and it, it's like amazing transformation but it's such a great uh, art and it's all about inclusion and i and so the idea that we're we're pushing these young people who may not identify and it's it has nothing to do with where you live because it can be anywhere i'm i was from rural wyoming Mm -hmm. and there was a huge gay community in cheyenne
2: Mm
1: -hmm. right so the gay community is everywhere but if you don't feel safe now and you don't feel like there's a home for yourself that's that's going to fuel the the suicide attempt right i mean that's
2: absolutely and if you are in a place where you don't feel like there you don't feel safe you don't feel there's a home there's no outlet you don't have a safe trusted adult peer, somebody to talk to, you know, therapy for everybody. I live in Boston. It's very accepted here as a practice. That is not true for all of our country, that therapy Mm -hmm. is something that, and now try and find a therapist that's in network with your insurance. It's a very difficult because COVID, again, we were already on the brink of a mental health tsunami before COVID, but COVID made it much worse. So waiting times, particularly for child and adolescent therapists but even for providers for adults are very long and very challenged you know like it's very very challenging to get in wow. um so it's not to be just a Debbie Downer I think there is hope I think there's you know I think the one you know one of the many benefits I shouldn't say the one the one benefit of the millennial generation, one of the many benefits of the millennial generation is that they're very, open about these issues they're very open about needing right. therapy they're asking i was ta- i've talked to we do some employer work in our practice and i've talked to multiple employers who say this is a recruitment tool we need mental health providers people when they join us ask about how many hours am i going to work and do you have mental health offerings as part of your uh, benefits package which i think is great that's amazing i think it's great i think it means that we have people who are open about I know I'm going to need some balance. I know I might need this resource, and I'm not embarrassed about that. I mean, I was lucky enough to go to Harvard Business School. I'm very open about the fact that I've had a therapist for many years due to many issues that happened in my life. And if I ever dare suggest it to a friend who's my age, I'm 45, it's as though I suggested, you know, why don't you go stand in the street naked? I mean, they're like mortified. And I say, Mm -hmm okay, well, let me frame it differently. You don't need a therapist. How about a coach? Would you would you that better? You know, like it's the yeah, nomenclature. That's a, that's so right. I'm really happy to see the generation behind us, um, or I think it's considered the, the next generation yeah. that's coming up um, saying, we're, we're not embarrassed. We're proud that we're doing this. Because I, I used to say all the time, I go to a physical trainer for my body. Why wouldn't I have somebody who is objective, who can help me? critically problem solved that's not my mom it's not my best friend who's coming right. at it more from a how do i protect Arden standpoint but somebody who's going to help me think through my own issues of mental resiliency so I well think and they have that, a way
1: of positioning that they have a better exactly. way of positioning it so i'm going to listen to it it's not my mom it's not my dad exactly. it's not my exactly. not my sister or brothers it's it's not the same it's different it's exactly they're like a coach i think it really the long-term benefit of a of a therapist is it's like a coach
2: Exactly. Exactly. So it's so a long-winded answer to your, or, to, or yeah. long-winded thought to your point is th- this is what I think our country, you know, I think one of the benefits of where we are now is it is in the public nomenclature. We have a generation of people who want mm-hmm. therapy. We also, you know, every major publication covers and did cover during COVID, but is even currently covering opioid epidemic and mental health crisis in America. It's very rare that you would pick up a paper, a major newspaper in a month's time and not see an article. And during COVID it was almost weekly. So, and that wasn't the case when I started the company 12 years ago. You would see these kinds of articles in psychological journals. You wouldn't right. see it on the front page of the, you know. Boston Wall
1: Street Journal or the Boston Or Blog. the Wall Street right. Journal,
2: exactly. So,
1: so think that that's So the big. awareness is big. So you're saying awareness has really changed.
2: Awareness is big. We also have a lot more modalities. There's more medications coming out. We now have genetic testing to see what kind of medications mm-hmm. is Tim suited for versus Arden we're seeing therapy delivered in all sorts of different ways than was previous. You know, everybody will say, or I shouldn't everybody everybody will say lots of people in the clinical community will say in office in person is the best. And that may be the gold standard, but we're seeing text apps. We're seeing more telehealth. We're seeing, you know, facilities that now are in all different parts of the countries that cater to specific subgroups, LGBTQ plus friendly facilities that are specifically for people with issues related to mental health or substance use and come from those communities in a facility where the staff is trained properly. There's the language is correct, you know, all those kinds of things. So I feel like Mm. there is some hope because we are taking it seriously as a country. I think we still need to see insurance providers have, you know, better coverage. We need to see employers you know, on a more universal basis, taking the mental health of their workforce. And by the way, we know that if they do the productivity gains that can be um. benefited. I just saw a statistic that talked about, um, the drug abuse and addiction alone costs the U.S. over $700 billion annually in healthcare expenses, crime-related costs, and lost workplace productivity. So if you combine that with mental health issues that cause people to have to take a, a break, you can imagine we can gain some of that back by just being more focused on prevention and really addressing things early. I think that's a huge issue is getting people comfortable with having tough conversations that might feel a little intrusive, but really kind of trying to be helpful to those around us and those we love to make sure they get into care as quickly as possible.
1: One of the things I was going to ask you is, you know, you you come from this in a very personal way, which I really appreciate you and your family sharing. I think it's I've seen the film. It's it's remarkable, but you, you know, you do this every day, you work, you run the business. Is there anything you want to say based on what you've learned to people that you don't normally get to say great that are question. facing this?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. I guess I'd say two things. One is, I, I and I said this earlier, but I'll reference it again. I really do believe it's a, whether it's mental health or substance use, these are long-term diseases and need to be treated as such. So families need to set their expectations over the long-term and need to be supportive of somebody and, frankly, ready to invest if they have that capacity over the long-term. It isn't going to be a 30-day, 90-day quick fix and they're done. It's really going to be something where they – have to consider a lifestyle change for that person and the resources that are going to be needed for the person to get into recovery. And what we look at on the addiction side for recovery is a year and five years as the best markers of long term oh. recovery, if people can okay. get to those two markers. So that's one. Um, second thing I would say is that, you know, for families, there are ways to set small boundaries, keep them, and maintain some degree of family harmony in what is often a very chaotic and crisis-driven situation. I think families live in extremes. Either we just let it just kind of live, be the way it is. No one says anything and we walk on eggshells. Mm-hmm. Or we're going to take everything away. We're going to throw them out. You know, And some of that is messaging um, that families hear Or interpret from self help groups. And I'm a big proponent of AA and Al Anon. I think sometimes families don't necessarily realize that there's a big gray middle between, you know, taking everything away and just letting it just be as it is. Um, And, you know, the second piece I'd say on the family side, if somebody's life isn't worse because they have this disorder, we get a lot of families who are like, well, can they drink someday? You know, will they be able to just have a glass of wine? And it's more of a, like, they're so concerned about the loss of this. You know, this life is going to be so much worse for this person. Or if we bring this up at the family event, everyone is going to think he's not equipped to work in the family business. And I'm not suggesting people need to wear t-shirts. I'm in recovery. Although if you want to, I think that's great. But I do think there's a far (laughs) cry again between we're going to just pretend nobody knows that this is going on when, in fact, most of the time people do know, versus, you know, we're going to embrace this as a family and say, we're really proud that our brother, son, father is getting help for something we know he needs. Um, so, those I love are it.
1: Yeah. I love it. I think it's you're.
2: And then for the general population, the last thing I'll add is. Yeah. Yeah, to really look at use specifically. I think I shared this with you offline, yeah, but
1: I wanted to you know, you use
2: yes. of alcohol specifically. Yep. Um, it, you know, it's one of those insidious things that I, I'm a social drinker. I enjoy a good glass of wine. Same but here. one thing I noticed within COVID, like post-COVID is so many people got into a habit of maybe it being something they had on the weekends to like now it's a daily habit and it's not <laughs> one cocktail it's four um and i'm laughing because i don't always think it means you're of alcoholic it doesn't you know we don't have to call the police every time it happens and i'm certainly not trying to be the alcohol police but i do think for just general health and well-being talking to your physician really drinking within norms of what is recommended which is now down to one to two drinks a day really one for women and two for men um mm-hmm. which sounds like a lot but it's it's not if you are somebody who drinks socially and 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 if you drink cocktails made at a restaurant you're probably drinking three drinks and your one drink you know these are mm-hmm. so it's just something to consider as we're as we all want to live healthy lives Um, The statistic I mentioned to you is that of the 140 million people, 12 and over who drink alcohol, 20% suffer with what is defined as alcohol abuse or addiction. And so I bring it up just because I think it's this, um, it's sort of this thing that we don't talk about a lot in our culture because alcohol has been around and it's legal and it's something that can be used really well and and a big piece of enjoyment for folks. But it is something to just be careful about.
1: Tell the quick story about your dad and the ice cream.
2: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes. Just, so one of the things we talk a lot about- You're going to love this. Yeah. So there's there's addiction has, you know, a lot of people who experience substance use dependence or, or addictive behaviors in that realm have cross addictions. They may gamble too much. They may engage in other activities. Um, and so my father identified sugar dependence as a huge issue for him. And he's, you know, almost 40 years in recovery, 30 something years in recovery uh, from alcohol. My dad is. And so he- he said he has recently given up sugar completely. And I asked him what the impetus was. And he talked about the incident that i described to you, where my parents and I live not in the same apartment, thank God, but we live in the same <laughs> building, one <laughs> floor down from each other. We see each other all the time. We get along very well. But I left for a business trip. And you know, I buy a pint of Brigham or a port of Brigham's ice cream, which is an old school brand here in Boston. I love it. It's really but I good. Stay in the freezer for six months, I'll have my the day I have it and then i'll forget about it and my dad knew i had ice cream down there so he went had some ice cream went upstairs and then he went back down i got home from my business trip i'm like where's my ice cream and he's like i threw it away i knew it was downstairs <laughs> and i can't i can't live upstairs knowing oh, it's in your yes your freezer um <laughs> and i you know i say hey i mean so he has now he is free from sugar for th- Two or three years, but right? he just turned 80 wow. two weeks ago. And I made a sugar. Tea. Uh it's like a natural just using apple juice concentrate uh carrot cake. And it tasted like a carrot cake made with apple juice concentrate. <laughs> it's not the same. It's not the same. It's good, but it's not the same. Um, but um, it is, you know, it is, it is a huge issue. I think for people who give up alcohol, the replacement is often comes from sweets it, right. Cookies.
1: It's natural, right? Chocolate. Yeah. Um how do people get a hold of you?
2: Uh, we have a website o'connorpg.com. People all, love to call my cell phone, which is fine. 617-290-9818. It's out in the public domain for better or worse. Um, and then I have an email address, which is A O'Connor at o'connorpg.com. or they can just call you and you can patch me in. Um, <laughs> yes, Happy, happy to happy do that too.
1: Love it. Happy to do that too. You and have Tim, been wh- got go before
0: you go, what is that number? I
1: can oh, uh,
2: Yeah, my cell is 617-290-9818.
0: Right. But Tim, how about you?
1: Oh, mine is 312-636-5855. Or you can go to my website at Tvolco.com. Or uh email me at tim.volk at me.com. And then I think uh we could talk forever. You are amazing. Thank you, Arden, so much to talk about. And uh, all of the resources we've listed will be part of the podcast and will be kept as part of the podcast notes for people to see. Uh, There's a great, great amount of stuff. So thank you.
2: Thank you so much.
0: And follow the podcast, share with others. Feel free to contact Tim and Arden. As I wrap up, there was one comment you really made that I loved, silently in the company of others. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for listening to the Rainbow Bull Podcast. Visit our website at www.tvulco.com or give us a call at 312-636-5855. And don't forget to click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of T. Volk and Company Consulting. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.